<laughs> Hello and welcome to the Plants and the Pipettes podcast. The Plants and the Pipettes. Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast, where um, we talk about plants. I think I'm not sure what's happening. And the pipettes. I am Tegan, <laughs> and also the Pipettes. Um, it's when, I'm Tegan. Whenever we start a band, we are called the Plants and the Pipettes. And yeah, I don't know I what like instrument that. you will play. Like I will no, play very terribly the drums. I think. Yeah, I, I thought I was on the drums. You okay, want to go then, we, then, it's, then it's the first two drummer band. <laughs> two, <laughs> Just like two drum sets. <laughs> <laughs> so neither of us can keep rhythm. I think you can probably keep some rhythm, no, and I definitely no, no, cannot I'm, sing. So I'm, like two drummers are too very <laughs> off key. We'll, we'll not have tone or time. Everything will be wrong. You know, sometimes sometimes you're on key. Um, <laughs> what have you been up to in the last week, girl? <laughs> I painted my nail. Um. <laughs> Did you just hit it with a hammer or you actually painted it? No, I actually painted it. Um, I was testing the color. I want to get all nails done. But with kids, like you you start doing something and then mm -hmm. immediately something interrupts you. And then like, okay, I'm going to run around with run, one nail painted now for a little bit. Um, so okay. I'm, I'm very I'm very pro this as a concept generally, but is it like, am I missing it? Is this something the kids are doing now? Nail painting is back in for men? No, no. Like... It's just my wife, she she found a very nice nail polish in a very beautiful color. And I was like, I also want that. She put mm -hmm. it on and I was like, yeah, can I have that too? And she was like, yeah, sure. And then we started, but then interruption. And then I have one finger. You have one nail. It's your ring finger. It's yeah. a bit, um, yeah, there's some ownership maybe in there. <laughs> maybe your wife has just marked you on that one nail. As I mean, I also like to have just one nail painted, but it's sort of... of seems like i chickened out which i didn't like I, I want all of them painted but um it's also nice i i don't know maybe i'll i'll find another polish in another ni nice color and do the other fingers in a different color that i only want my nails to be black that's the like like i tried black, that once i tried it once i i couldn't stand the look were, of it like, you were I, an emo teenager weren't you not not really into into the scene but definitely into the spirit and <laughs> I, the fashion i i had to take it off this at the same night because I, 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 it looked so ridiculous on me. Like I did all kinds of ridiculous <laughs> stuff. Like my hair was like I, I had it blonde at one point. I was wearing a bandana like a pirate for like half a year. Like I, I have no that. shame visually, but the black nails were too much for me. Mm, interesting. Yeah. What have you been up to? <laughs> I don't know. I think nothing's really going to compare to painting nails. Um, <laughs> a nail. <laughs> a, a painting nail. <laughs> Um, I actually I went to a cool art exhibition. Um, there's this infinity mirrors thing. Do you know what it is? I've seen your pictures, so I can guess what it is. It's these like when you have mirrors that are parallel to each other, and then you put any light in between, it reflects into infinity and looks quite interesting. Yeah, so there's an exhibition at the Tate Modern in London. Um, it's Yayoi Kusama is the artist and. Um, you might you might know of her. She also was really into spots for a while. So there's like if you've seen a pumpkin with spots on it, that's also the same artist. Um, and this is kind of I think think it's a little bit still on the the theme of spots because it has sort of spots of light um, mm -hmm. and quite small rooms and then all mirrored so that it looks like it's infinity. Um, it was really cool. It was a very short. There's, there was only two rooms. You know, it was impossible to get into this exhibition. We had to. I mean, use the the 
secret access of the boyfriend who has something via his company and then also go in the middle of the day and then it was literally like a 10 minute thing you can go in there they sort of heard you in there and then they're like okay you've got two minutes to stay in the room now get out and new people have to come in so it was like like it was a very rapid experience and I think you know what you really want is just to be able to sit in these mirrored rooms for a long time but her history is also very interesting um she was a Japanese artist she went to the U.S. and she sort of had some mental health issues and then some quite famous white dude artists stole her work or appropriated, like sort of, I don't know, were inspired by heavily mm-hmm. um, and started doing some similar things, which also didn't help her mental health. And she um, ended up checking herself into an institution and sort of has lived there and worked from there for a long time. So. It's kind of interesting seeing the work and then also having this background of her because she was, apparently she had hallucinations and then she goes into these infinity rooms and just sort of sits and contemplates and it's like, okay, so you're kind of matching the world as other people see it to what you're already sort of seeing in your head. You're sort of kind of bringing this internal like hallucination thing outside it was it was it was cool to see it was also um difficult to see because it was booked for the day of this massive transport strike across london so it was impossible to move anywhere so i ended up bicycling i spent my lunch hour bicycling down and then like did some meetings i had to do for work you know some work i had to keep on doing my work from a costa coffee shop (laughs) and then (laughs) went to this exhibit and then went back home again and it was just everything was a complete mess but it was you know it took us it took so long to find these tickets and it was like not really possible to get these tickets except via this avenue of of Mm -hmm. using some privilege and yeah, but, we didn't want to cancel, but mm. yeah. yeah, I I'm thinking now if it's so hard to get in there, can can you like DIY yourself with some IKEA mirrors? I know they have like very large mirrors for bathrooms. We have one of those, so maybe just get four of those, kind of build an easy frame around well, it, and then sit in there, and then you have all the time in the world. Have like a torch, and then. <laughs> The, the really cool room required also some, it would require some flooding because it had sort of a water, it, it had this black and then water to help with the reflection as well mm-hmm. and give this infinity. So I think I'd have to paint a lot, have a lot of darkness and also some, yeah, some flooding. A bucket with some paint. I, yeah. I see no problem there. <laughs> anyway, shall we, talk, shall we talk about some plant science? favorite plant so it is my turn to talk about my favorite plant and my favorite plant of the week i'm sort of both stealing from internets and not doing my homework properly um this was an article that was just published in q on the q website and i'm also stealing from yarum and doing a little bit more of a um family (laughs) of plants rather than individual plants uh yeah or maybe it's a genus. I think I'm gonna. It's the genus that is kind of the cool genus. So the family is called Podostomaceae, and the genus is Saxicolella. Okay. Yoram. I've never heard of these before. So have you? Have you does that strike? Does that strike any? No. Is this okay, related to I, Arabidopsis or tobacco? Quite far away, I would say. <laughs> um, How would I know then? <laughs> Yeah. So if it's if I tell you it's a rheophyte, what would a rheophyte be? Rheophyte or rheophyte? Uh, R H E O fight. Oh. The fight is the plant part. What would yes, the rheo be? Yes. Yeah. 
you could have given me the easy party and then you could have done the Rio yourself. Um, so I have no idea. So it's maybe from Rio de Janeiro? No, very far away. <laughs> um, if I told you that they have holdfasts, these plants, what would that tell you? I would have to Google what a holdfast is. Um. Yeah, so a holdfast is something that, I don't know, personally I would normally associate it with a seagrass or something that's like growing, like a, even an algae, something that's, you know, not got roots, but it's got something to hold on to rocks, basically. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not a seagrass, because a seagrass would have proper roots, but something that's holding on. And the rheophyte means that it's a, a water river living plant. That's why I know it from. Like I know the the I think Panta Rey um, saying that says everything's in in flow, everything's in motion. Um, I know ah, that from my okay. my studies. There is this famous like pitch experiment where you have something that looks like a solid, but it's a like very slowly flowing. Um, so you have this pitch drop experiment, and that's why like I couldn't place it just from the Rio. But now that you say it, like yeah, it's in the fights plants that live in the flow like in the flow of mm -hmm. water i always remember being told that glass is not really a solid it's just a, a very slow liquid mm -hmm. that's a lie right yeah i think that feels like a lie it yeah yeah i would agree so because like you've never seen a, a window pane very slowly <laughs> drip out of the frame um even after 100 years <laughs> time is relative um, these are rheophytes, um, in particular the the one that we're talking about today, or the genus, which actually has eight different species in it. They live not just in rivers, but actually in waterfalls, which seems like an odd choice, I would say, to be mm -hmm. honest. if I guess it's nice because you're aerated. I guess it's less nice because... Yeah. Things have got to be pretty rough, right? Everything else is... Yeah, you have constantly tons of water dropping down on you at every second of the day. I think it's it's quite harsh. Yeah, I'm imagining it's like gentle waterfalls and maybe somewhere at the top, but it does say growing within falls and rapids. Um, and it mentions the fast-moving wa water and the fact that it's aerated. So I guess that's kind of... yeah. The, the aeration is very nice for them. Maybe they can grow quite fast because of that. Mm -hmm. Um Otherwise, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure the benefits of that, but maybe there's not much competition from other plants because all the other plants have decided to, to not yeah. do that, to not live there. Yeah, they, they got the short end of the stick when they everybody was drawing their niche that they will be growing in and they got the like every other niche was taken already. They're like, okay, I, I think I have to go in, into the waterfall now. Ah, too bad. This is the genesis. So there's um, eight species and they're quite newly named because they are found in this quite weird place. They're found in West Africa, specifically in Guinea. And in the article, they actually mentioned that it's been pretty, I mean, yeah, typically people are not looking in these places for biodiversity like plants so often. And also in the last few years, it's been really hard, obviously, with COVID, Um there's also been a coup in the area, which has not helped sort of mm -hmm. collection and investigation of the species. So the the particular species of this genus of eight species that the article here is focused on is called Denise's saxicolella, and it's named after a botanist. Her name is Denise Mulmo, and they think they basically discovered it for it to go extinct. So it was found in a single location in a river, in the Concore River in Guinea. And they sort of collected it back in, I think in 2018 or a couple of years ago. And they've identified it now and they've just published the paper very recently. 
but when they look at the satellite images, sort of Google Earth images of where this was collected from, the landscape has massively changed. Um, and that's because there's a lot of damming. So hydroelectricity requires, mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice. It's sort of a renewable resource compared to burning fossil fuels, but it requires damming, which can really massively alter the environment around it. And they've found that basically they, that, that stretch of river has been targeted for damming. So everything has changed since then. And they, they don't really know yeah where where it would be mm -hmm. apart from that and they have a sample of it but it, there's no seeds or nothing that would actually allow them to regenerate the plant so there is there is some chance that it's somewhere but nobody's properly looked um yeah. that dam in itself flooded about 150 kilometers of the length of the river so at, all the way up to the um like tributary so it's sort of possible that everything is gone mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit unclear. yeah hopefully it's one of these stories where we thought this plant was extinct but then like 15 years later they found again a specimen that would be nice but we're like <laughs> that's hoping yeah anyway apart from apart from the kind of bad news <laughs> the yeah i don't know if there's much else to say except it's it's called the orchid of the falls which sounds pretty romantic but the picture they have Firstly, it's not an orchid, that should be clear. It looks very mossy or lichen-y. Um, it has these sort of clingy, I mean, it's, it's got a cling. <laughs> it's really got to cling on. Yeah. So it basically looks like um, a, maybe a mass of roots that are clinging onto a rock. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know who came up with the name Orchid of the Falls. I think good PR for the <laughs> the fall orchid but otherwise it's a little bit less exciting to look at and yeah also possibly extinct now um but they're also definitely not orchids so the name mm -hmm. is a bit of a false name as well yeah but yeah I don't know I think it's it's interesting but it's also one of those things where we don't know much about it it's yeah. literally the paper that has sort of described or I mean there was a, a revision of the entire genus and this came out this this year as part of the key bulletin. Yeah, I know that they don't have any material to grow it from, but if you just imagine wanting to grow this in a greenhouse and you have to install an artificial waterfall <laughs> or something that has a very high current and it's pumping water 24-7 just to have this plant feel at home, that would also be a major pain. So, But yeah, but it's sad that it might be gone. I think I think it's just there's nothing known about. I mean, maybe it doesn't need to be in the waterfall. It just can't. I mean, I mean, yeah, we don't know. I'm not sure. We, we do. We, I think nobody's ever tried growing it out of the waterfall. Maybe it'd be super happy and it would actually grow orchid-like flowers once it was out of the water. Maybe the, the waterfall's been holding it back all this time. It just never knew that it would come out of the waterfall. Like no one ever told it that it was possible to not live in a waterfall and it hadn't imagined a life outside there. It would just you would just hear a massive sigh of relief when you take it out. And it's like finally <laughs> some peace. Yeah, Thank it's so you. quiet out. It must be so loud for the plant constantly in there. Anyway, um, that was my favorite plant. Um, it is called, as a reminder, Saxicolella deniciae, or de Denise's Saxicolella. Colella. Diversity in the plants. Science.
It's Pride Month, and so today we're celebrating a non-binary trans scientist, Robin Aguila. Um, they wrote an article that I, I read. It's called Breaking the Binary, Coming Out as a Trans Scientist. And I sort of took a little bit of leeway here. It's They are not really a plant scientist, but they're working in genomics, and plants have genomes. I mean, they're working in wow, human genomics. And wow, wow. They're building, um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're building new tools to really follow um, genomic events happening on, like, by looking at the by through a microscope, which I've always found really cool. So they're doing like visualization of genetic events happening, unfortunately in humans, but maybe in a couple of years we can do it in plants. But I just really enjoyed reading the article that they wrote, breaking the binary by coming out as a trans scientist. And um, that's why I picked them and want to talk about it a little bit more here. So they are a trans first-gen Latinx person um, coming from rural communities in uh, Mexico and uh, are now working in the STEM field. And this is sort of talking a lot about the multitude of discrimination that they can face and what the system needs to do to change there. And there is a section in the article that I think is really helpful for many people like me, for example, who are not themselves part of the community but want to help. Um, it's literally called How You Can Help. And um, there's a list of a couple of things that institutions and the scientific system in general can or should do to make it more welcoming and easier for people who are non-binary to be part of the STEM system. For okay. example, uh, cultivating spaces where it's safe and welcome to share pronouns, which can be really important not only for people in the non-binary community or here they, they call it the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ2IA plus uh, community. Um, so just by bringing up the topic of pronouns and making sure to like openly share them, you're normalizing it and giving room for people to be themselves and present themselves how they want to be addressed. And I think we talked about this in the past year as well. And it's something that like I started doing now as well in like email signatures and stuff just to just not make it special when people bring up their pronouns, but just make it something like you would say your name and you say your pronouns. To normalize it, yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, Providing opportunities for trainees to add their preferred name on classroom documents uh, can really help them reaffirm their uh, themselves as individuals. And often, when you're navigating these problems of legal name changes, you're in this in-between phase where, unlike legal documents, you have your old name, and but you're not living this name. You're living the, uh, a new name, and providing a system where this is welcomed and supported is really helpful for uh, especially for trans people and it goes on with a um a number of things that, that people can do and i really enjoyed reading that not only for the sort of biography part of what their experiences were coming into the stem field but also really for these calls to action things that people maybe like young group leaders or senior group leaders for that matter could be doing to make the places more welcome uh, what I really liked about them is uh, not only that they really are a fan of cats, but that they um, have a very nice website where they're talking not only about their STEM research, but also about um, their art that they're doing as well, features and, and writing. And so they're really bringing in not only... Uh, they, they're not only working in, in STEM, but also connecting it to many other fields as well. They're like writing a memoir and a graphic novel based on their lived experience. Um, they are advocating for more representation in STEM. They 
um, co-found the Genome Sciences Association for the Inclusion of Marginalized Students, uh, GSAIMS, and in general support their peers in um, by mentoring them and navigating the, the field of uh, in, in STEM specifically and in, in the genomics field. So that's uh, Robin Aguila. We're linking to their website and also to the article that they wrote. And um, I highly recommend checking it out because I found it quite inspiring and quite cool. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Should I still credit you? Yoram, Yoram wants, uh, <laughs> this is very relevant to the actual bias I'm talking about, so I think we do need to mention it up front. Yoram wants that he gets credit for also finding this, um, even though I found it a week earlier than him when he couldn't have possibly found it. Um, <laughs> Still 13% more likely <laughs> that I get my name on it. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, this is just a really short one. I think it's something that kind of a lot of us maybe suspected already. It's very in with the agenda that Yoram and I have been pushing always. And it's the fact that there's a new publication that just came out in Nature on Wednesday that is talking about the fact that women are less likely to be cited than their male counterparts in science. Um, so this is about being given credit. It's actually, no, it's not about citation. It's being given credit. So it's um, authorship, but also patents were mm -hmm. included as well as whether they um, appear on the patents in the end. So it's what I found quite interesting is that this article seems to have actually gone through sort of accelerated uploads. So it's it's been put online before it's all fully... Uh, formatted and everything and I wonder if that's you know this is an important topic it's been pushed through that's kind of reassuring to me if it's mm -hmm. seen as an important topic um what the article does is it has sort of three different data sources um from quite quantitative so looking at numbers based on a very large amount of scientists and comparing the credit that gets given and also sort of doing that in a you know matching for career advancement stage so one thing you could say for example is yes men have more publications because men at the moment there are more men in senior positions so they also did things where they looked at sort of matching for that so you're comparing like with like instead of like with slightly higher and more privileged like so this very large quantitative part included conducting discussions with 52 different universities across the US um, between the years 2013 and 2016. And they took information about over 120,000 scientists looking at almost 40,000 journal articles as well as seven and a half thousand patents. And then they also looked at who worked on individual projects mm -hmm. um, and who got the credit and who didn't get the credit from that. They did also a survey of the authors to ask about the recognition and then also sort of had these more qualitative responses, which I think we're trying to look into the reasons behind why some people are getting more credit or more likely to be appreciated than mm -hmm. others. Yeah, and so what they did find is that there is a gap. Um, ultimately, this yeah, this just that Yes, it can be that there might be other gaps also due to 
productivity or you know power structures you know especially stuff that has been inherited from earlier generations they're not saying that's definitely not the case but we we've known for a while that there is a gap in the number of scientific works coming out of women and, and coming out of men and now they're saying there is some evidence that at least some of that comes from getting given credit for work done so this is you know names going onto the publications as opposed to that step afterwards which is people then citing mm -hmm. the publications by people and that's also been discussed as having some biases as well but this is kind of getting credit at the very first step which i think i mean apart from being a very real thing that then can get counted towards your cv so you know as we move through science and try to get jobs you do need to have those publications you need to have that record otherwise you won't get the next position that can also be really disillusioning if you've done work and you know that you contributed something and you feel like you didn't get the credit you deserve and especially if maybe you saw a counterpart who was getting credit for similar things or maybe for lesser things so i can mm -hmm. it can also be like just a bit depressing and maybe this also can contribute to this leaky pipeline thing and i mean this is my suppositions as opposed to something that's coming up in the article but i i think that's yeah one of the the possibilities right yeah what i found very disheartening was um that they said that the more the, like the higher the impact was of the publication the more likely mm. it was that women were underrepresented on it so and the, in the article that i read they bring up the example of rosalind franklin and uh, watson and crick <laughs> Uh, which I was saw like a few one different of articles that cited like they they went yeah. back to Rosalind Franklin, yeah. yeah, one of the biggest impact stories for molecular biology or genetics, uh, the the structure of the DNA, where the main tech who did the the analysis, who came up with the idea, who had the the, the brilliant idea that it's had a double helix um, in the DNA structure, she didn't get any credit. She wasn't put on the, the paper. The images, yeah. yeah. But I think she also did like some some important part of the analysis. So she, yeah, and she didn't get the credit on it. She wasn't on the publication, and then uh, she she died very early on. Um, but then also didn't wasn't mentioned on the Nobel Prize that was then awarded to Watson and Crick. And in like in a kind of salty side note, the the article that I read said that the Nobel Prize Foundation had no official statute excluding the option of awarding a prize posthum uh, posthumously. However, she did not receive the Nobel Prize that year, although, like, technically, she could have received that. Uh, they don't, though. They don't give it after death. I thought that was... Yeah, but Maybe now they don't they do. officially? But back then, ah, they, didn't, okay. they, back then, they mm, didn't have okay. that rule yet in place. So they could have done it back then, but they, but they might have. Okay, in fairness, they might have had it as sort of an unofficial rule, you know... In, yeah, yeah, were, yeah. The question That's is, were I'm they saying, giving like, it to other dead? <laughs> I know, but like, were they giving it to other dead dude? Because it might have been a rule, and they just wasn't written down. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know that. I'm just, <laughs> I just like how like this is like the end ending of that article. It's like sort of pointing at it and being like, look, really underrepresenting on multiple levels. So there's a couple, there's a couple of now articles already out about this. It's been up for you know a day, less than a day, and there's already some comments. I'm I'm reading one in the the Guardian. Definitely check those out. I think some other key things that came up is that the gap was not only in very male-dominated fields like engineering, but it was also seen in female-dominated fields. The example they give is the health industry, and kind of terrifyingly, it was particularly evident during the earliest stages of women's careers. Again, this is something where, I mean, this is just me questioning whether as a young woman, it's even more seen as, you know, your contribution, it's devalued maybe as 
mm-hmm. younger women are maybe given less no respect is the right word but yeah i think credit probably in in this and then as i said they they also surveyed people so they surveyed more than 2400 scientists and asked them if they thought that they had been excluded from papers where they should have been included 43% of women reported this um 38% of men so 5% more women so it's quite quite a bit more women um and then they also ask them why they think that's happened. And generally people say their contribution has been underestimated, although women said often that there was some bias or discrimination or maybe something else involved that mm-hmm. came into it, whereas men said that their contributions did not warrant authorship. So I don't know, maybe the men are more humble than the women and just, <laughs> I'm not sure. But anyway, I think this is this is a bit different from our normal biases that we talk about because we often talk about these cognitive biases. This is sort of more of a, a system bias mm-hmm. that's potentially happening and has been now has some, some quantitative as well as qualitative data to back it up. So yeah. overall, it's one of those things where the more, the more information that we have, there's sort of more... You can put a finger to it and say, look, this is happening. How do we fix it? You know, mm-hmm. the problem is now very well defined. Yeah. Let's yeah. please fix it. Let's, let's put some resources into fixing this problem, please. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I was listening to another podcast. And it's about, it's a really cool podcast. <laughs> it's called Global Pillage. They talk about sort of different idioms and different things in different cultures, like different cultural traits and mostly idioms. I mean, idioms are very fun and what other cultures say is normal. So, for example, in Germany, you have many idioms which are related to pork and sausages and pigs. <laughs> you, ha- you say like, I have the pig, which means I have like good fortune somehow yeah i, I usually in the past tense like i've, I've yeah, had the I, pig. I got the pig i got the pig yeah. i got the pig <laughs> <laughs> and then you say what's the other one like you say everything has an end but the sausage has two yeah, which i'm not even sure what that means this is sort of a joke thing this is like something i don't that, even like, understand what that means children elementary school children say <laughs> I don't know. Whenever when we come to Germany, that's one of the first things as foreign as we learn. Anyway, one of the things that they said is that apparently in India, clocks collect trees collect clocks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was mentioned in passing. There was no translation. I cannot find it on the internet. The Indian person I'm close to is being useless in this matter, and will not give me information, no matter how much I shake them. Um, if anybody knows why clocks, trees collect clocks in India, I really want to know now. I can't. I can't. Please tell me. It's stressing me out. I do not understand why I can't. I'm good at googling. Usually, I'm bad at computers, but I'm good at googling. <laughs> I already uh, talked about the Pride Month. I just found another um, little handy guide there that's considerations for LGBTQ plus friendly field work. I found that on Plante, the network, where they talk about things you can do to make field work um, more inclusive. And field work has this special thing. It's very important in, in some parts of plant science where you like literally go out into the field often for days on end, sometimes even longer periods. And you collect samples, you analyze stuff, you do experiments in the wild. And you're, so you're with a small group of people, you're huddled together for a fairly long time. And these are not necessarily yeah, you people that you... share accommodations yeah. and 
you know, you often are just one, just a very small amount, you know. Yeah. Not in a big group. Maybe you split into pairs to do some collections and stuff. It can yeah. be. And you, you share like tents, you, you eat together, you sh spend your free time together. So lots of like invasion of work into the private space and this can be problematic if um yeah if you're sort of considered by others out of the of, out of the ordinary or if you're just non-binary and um still in a phase where you can't deal with it in an sort of relaxed and in way ways just like yeah whatever um so there are th some things that people who are setting up these field guides can do, um, part, uh, starting with stating explicit allyship and making it clear that this is a safe and welcome space for non-binary people, um, to bringing, uh, like making sure that whatever region you travel to, because it might often not be in the country that your institution is loca located at, um, that you talk about the regional attitudes towards LGBTQ plus people in in the region that you're going to work in and make sure that people are safe there. Uh, stuff like, for example, people might be out and, and very open about their identity at work in, in the institute, but then if you travel to another country that has um, less of an ex uh, accepting culture, that you're not outed by your peers, that so they don't, like, they don't out you only the person who is non-binary outs themselves is if they want to and if it's safe mm -hmm. stuff like that and then coming down to stuff like uh housing and accommodation and being very clear about the communication beforehand and also mentioning sensitive topics like bathrooms for example because people might not want to bring that up themselves so if you as the organizer already in the basic information talk about like how for example toilets will be um set up this helps already because it doesn't put the pressure on somebody to like come up with that sort of sensitive question. So yeah, it's a it's a short but I think very useful guide if you're involved in any type of field work, how you can make it more inclusive. I have something that's in a bit of a related monthly theme. If I told you there was a plant that had the species name, not the genus, just a species of Germanotta, do you know what sort of plant this might be? Germanotta? No, like either coming, it's coming from germination or from German. Is it a German otter that discovered it? Do you know? Do you know who Stephanie German otter is? No. Maybe German otter, maybe. It's Lady Gaga's original birth name, and this oh, is. Oh, I should have known that. Gaga oh. German otter. It's a genus of Gaga, the Gaga ferns or the Gaga lip ferns. It's nineteen different species in there. Um, and there's there's two of them in particular, so the Gaga German otter that has you know her her original surname as part of the the species name, and there's also Gaga monstra parva, which is named after the fact that the fans of Gaga are called little monsters. <laughs> and this, yeah, this group of was of ferns was named after sort of a reclassification. So previously the ferns in the Gaga genus had been assigned to a different genus based on how they looked physically, but there was some, you know, further analysis, including some DNA sequencing, and they realized that they actually belong to a separate genus of their own, these 19 different species. Apparently the reason they were given the name Gaga is because they have a distinct DNA sequence spelling Gaga. 
I couldn't find much information about that. Like a lot of, of the, the popular science articles reference this, but GAGA is a sequence that you could find, like alone is a sequence you could find in any species. It's only four letters. Like I'm, I could yeah. guarantee that like every single living thing has a GAGA at some point. So maybe this is like a repetition where it's like, you know, gaga, 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 like lots of gaga, repeats of, yeah, I mean, that would be very special. Maybe it has lots of repeats of gaga. I personally wonder if maybe they just liked gaga as an, as an idea. I think the yeah. lab, there's mentions that the lab who named it, they listened to gaga a lot and they really loved her in the lab. They also, the other main reason given is that the ferns in the gametophyte stage, so when, you know, they're kind of small, um, they have these very heart-shaped structures and that reminded them of an outfit that Gaga wore to, I think, the Grammys or the Emmys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Grammys at one stage is sort of big shoulder pads and, and sparkly. Again, this is something that a lot of ferns have. I think, like, maybe this one looks a little bit more spiky than, than other ferns and... So we've just had we've had to have put an editing break in here because we just had some discussion about how much her costume really does look like the fern. <laughs> what do you reckon? How much does it look like the fern? You're out of ten. Like I don't know. I would give it maybe um, a benevolent seven. Like okay, yeah. I think I think you have to really love Gaga already and be invested in the Gaga concept. And then realistically, I mean, there's a lot of these things on on Twitter now where it's like blah, looking like blah. You know, like. <laughs> You know, President Obama as different New York snacks and then all of his outfits where the colors match up with you yeah. know, Coke or fries or something like that. So I think I think you could... I'm not saying that this is not what sprung to mind for these scientists. I think it was also really cool. I mean, the, the third reason... So the first reason is the DNA gaga. Mm -hmm. The second reason is the, the outfit. Okay, sure. The third reason is also the fact that she's very supportive of equality and individual expression. And they sort of link that a little bit back to the ferns as well because they're saying these ferns are very they're exceptionally obscure it's very different difficult to tell who's who and what species is what so it's hard to sort of identify them and ascribe them identity and then they're also sort of um, have different you know they can be female male or bisexual depending on the different growth conditions so there's this sort of lined up a little bit with Lady Gaga's persona as well and Gaga herself has at one point responded to the naming of these. And she says, since it's an asexual fern, there are 19 species contained within the genus, all sexless, judgeless, how I wish, how I wish to be. <laughs> so apparently that went down well. But this is, this is a really old story. It's from back in 2012 that the paper came out and it got really just huge amounts of media attention, as you can tell from the fact that Gaga herself even responded. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of... So no, no matter what the choice behind it was, I think this this naming has done more for the fern community <laughs> than a lot of other outreach events since then, I would say. Yeah, in that respect, very successful. Uh, I, Tegan, Tegan, what, what is pea cycling? Recycling pea? I mean, yeah, that's the better guess than thinking like going to the toilet while on a bike. Um, 
the peace cycling is something that I found um, as a potential solution to deal with the current crisis in terms of fertilizer that we have. Um, Ukraine and Russia are both producing lots of the world's fertilizers and because of the war there is a fertilizer shortage. So human pea is very rich in nitrogen, in urea and with the help of some bacteria in the soil it can be transformed into nitrates that can be then actually taken up by plants. And I found numbers that um, a year's worth of human pea is enough nitrogen to grow 145 kilograms of wheat. So for from one person, if you would collect all of their pea, which is technically a little bit challenging, but possible. Um, because there are now some places where you can actually like collect your pee. They are um, th th there exists this like dividing toilets where sort of the liquids and the solids go into separate. Um, containers and then the pea can then be collected and then it's sterilized um, like pasteurized at 72 degrees celsius and then it's safe it's food safe then then it's sterile like no pathogens can survive that and um, it's very rich in nutrients and you can grow plants from isn't, it crops from no, it but isn't it also very salty apparently that's not a big problem um, they even concentrated in the articles that i found that uh, they they evaporate the water um, to sort of concentrate it and then use it. So I imagine, like, if you apply general fertilizers, they're also salty, that you like salts that you bring into the soil. So you can't always do that. You can't just water them with pee all the time. But at times when you would apply fertilizer, instead of fertilizer, you can apparently also apply uh, urine. And this sort of got me into a rabbit hole because I've talked in the past on like a different podcast project um, years ago I talked with an activist from Berlin they were doing compost toilets and they were talking about how challenging it is to actually make use of the the all of the nutrients that are in um, sort of human waste products because it's heavily regulated for good reasons because of pathogens and so on so you don't really want to bring human pathogens on crops um, mm -hmm. but they were developing all kinds of ways to make sure that it's food safe and that it's not going like in the wastewater treatment plants because it's very energetically expensive to um, sort of treat water wastewater um, and remove all the nutrients there before they go into the into the environment. We can't also just dump it into rivers. So mm -hmm. there is this pool of nutrients that would be good to be used. And so now I actually looked up like how you can build your own um, like low cost urine treatment system um, at home. Like you can pasteurize it with solar energy. They they like mm -hmm. uh, suggest doing that. So maybe by, like this summer my project will be to like uh, fertilize my garden with like human pee. Um, I probably won't be doing it, but only for time reasons, not because I I'm uh, not okay with doing that. But I'm putting a lot like a ton of links to stuff around that like if you are for some reason <laughs> interested in going that route for for fertilizing your crops um there are some resources resources there speaking of p um a metabolite that starts with p is pyruvate and um there's a new paper that came out in nature <laughs> that plants that was a great <laughs> segue tegan i won't hear any other <laughs> any anything else about it tell me about pyruvate there has been a study coming out in nature plants um talking about something that i had no idea about that it existed it's called metabolic channeling um have you ex uh, heard about that before is it is it when uh, let me see if i've got it right that might be the problem. <laughs> i i think it's when a, a ton of enzymes sort of like basically like link arms and pass metabolites from one to the other and this can be because um 
Sometimes actually some of the metabolic processes are not even that favored. So you can kind of almost push from behind by mm-hmm. clustering everything together. So it has like it's these benefits of energy, but also this benefits of proximity and therefore time. Is that is that the thing? Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. But in this case, they're talking about something even um, like it's it's not when all of the enzymes are linked together in this case they they are talking about pyruvate and uh, meta- like the metabolic processes starting from it and it can be either used in respiration or it can be used in the buildup of biomass and both of these things can start in the mitochondria so you would expect there's like one pool of pyruvate in the mitochondria and something separate like just both processes sort of picked and pyruvate from the pool then they would they would compete basically yeah and then some some sort of regulation you can have like outside of the pool of pyruvate that's then deciding is biomass favored or respiration favored but they found here by tracing pyruvate with uh, labeling it with um, 13c so radioactive carbon they found that from distinct roots of how the pyruvate enters the pool it decides how it also exits the pool so the one pool is not actually like one pool it's multiple pools together in something like an organelle like the, like the mitochondria and uh, these pools have their distinct functions but they can also sort of interact with one another so if you block one of the um, roots where the pyruvate can be used it can then be channeled into the other pools, but only if there's sort of some some problem downstream of it. And this type of channeling, I had no idea existed, that within sort of the same organelle, you sort of trace the pyruvate. If it's, if it's imported from the outside, it goes a different route than if it's made within the organelle, even though like the mitochondria are really small. But did they describe the the mechanism? I mean, then I assumed that if it's the one that's important, it's just that all those enzymes for that process are kind of hanging onto the 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 sort of um, membrane of the mitochondria. Is that what's happening? It's just that everything's clustered so that it comes in and as soon you know, if you're all hanging out near the door, then when you come in the door, every, the thing that you're going to hit most is those enzymes and yeah. not the other ones or whatever other processes are required that's a really good question unfortunately i couldn't read the paper it's behind the paywall so i couldn't um i can't answer that i guess there's like something in the paper but i think it's like according to the abstract and the press release that i've read this is a process that that's not that often described like it's not that we know dozens of cases where this sort of metabolic channeling happens like this where you have a pool that's not actually one pool but multiple pools um so i think we don't know that much about it yet um, but it's just like not all pyruvate in the mitochondria is the same like they can depending on where they come from they go in different directions even though from for, for our for us most of the case when we when we measure pyruvate concentration in the mitochondria we're measuring total pyruvate and not individual pools I mean, don't you think we just have this problem as humans where because this stuff that we're looking at, it's so small scale relative to us, we see it all as very, very small. And to us, we're like, you know, it's a mitochondria, it's tiny. Of course, all the pyruvate must be together. But at that scale, like Mm -hmm. the relative size of a pyruvate molecule compared to a mitochondria, you know, it's like one dude hanging out in a huge football stadium. And yeah, maybe all of those same dudes are hanging out near the entrance or, you know, in one thing. And it's, I don't know, we've, we've seen other studies which look at how there's this physical sub-partitioning mm-hmm. inside a cellular space, so things clustering together and, and having sort of 
structural elements but in in not with membranes and not in the way we traditionally think of separate you know we have this idea yeah. that we separate things with membranes we have like a a lipid barrier but there's a lot of protein structures that can can form little thing and yeah it's maybe we're a bit hampered by our own bias when we think about this and from that point of view that makes kind of sense then that yeah not yeah. all pyruvates are hanging out together yeah yeah i think i think you're right um, I have something that is just a the way of the future and how robots are going to take all of our jobs. Have you heard about cloud labs? No, maybe is it like you, you upload your data to the cloud and sort of lots of like offsite algorithms are working on your data and then you get it back with results? That's what I would do if I had a startup with that name. <laughs> No, it's actually, it's much more um, hands-on in the lab, except without hands, machines-on in the lab. So it's actually the lab work itself being run by machines. You know, there's these big labs that are just have a ton of different types of machine. And depending on what the cloud lab might be, the one they're talking about in this article is in San Francisco. And they can do things from cell culture, DNA synthesis, lipid chromatography, structural analysis, mass like like mass spec, um, NMR and stuff like that. So they've got sort of all these machines and you can then sort of describe how it will be done. You can code in what you do mm -hmm. and then you can do the experiments basically remotely through these cloud mm -hmm. labs. And so there's some there's some benefits here. The benefits being that your lab doesn't necessarily have to have that equipment, so you can rent out the equipment, so you can have access to this technology. One other thing that's really clear is that it's it's coding, so you're really telling machines what to do using code, which means that the reproducibility is really really high. Like it's literally copy paste, and you've got the same experiment running. Mm -hmm. You know. Of course, there's always can be possible things, but compared to human actual yeah. hands, yeah. you know, really highly reproducible. You can do it side by side at the same time. Um, and you can also then see exactly what was done as far as like you've got code written out and you can say step, this step was done, this step was done. And that is what was done. Whereas, I mean, if you think about what you wrote in your lab books, it's like <laughs> I then did this and then, did, yeah, which lab books is your response? So this is the benefits they talk about. Um and this, there's this kind of concept that this is becoming a little, this could become a thing that's happening. Um, of course, it, it's very expensive to get access to these cloud lab, labs still. So it says that the lowest tier to use a cloud lab is running three experiments in parallel, which kind of makes sense. You need to have at least the three replicates, but that starts at $24,000 per month. <laughs> so... They're saying it's not cheap, but then they're saying, but on the other hand, like you can't, you can't have that machine itself, like for yeah. this money. So maybe it's pros and cons. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. And then they also compare this to another concept in the article. I had also not heard about. Do you know what a contract research organization is? I mean, isn't I thought the Fraunhofer, for example, is stuff like that, where you you go there as a company and you say, please research a new way to stick. I don't know, a piece of metal to the wall. And then they will do that and then give you the results and patent it if necessary and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I think it's, yeah, this is, these are more other people are doing things mm -hmm. for you. And whereas this is, the robot does things, but actually you are the one still doing the things because, you, you know, you're yeah. controlling the robot as it were. Um, yeah. So it's 
a bit of a different concept. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah, yeah but but very interesting. I mean, of course, like lots of stuff that can't be done like this, but I think a lot of like the large scale things, especially when it comes to cell culture, would totally benefit from this type of automation. And I think nobody really wants to sit at a clean bench and taking care of uh, of a of a culture like all lots and lots of culture plates. Like I think this is nobody fav- nobody's favorite work. So I think handing stuff like this off to robots um, will make nobody sad, apart from the person who pays for it. Yeah, that's the thing. I definitely see the big possibility to increase the gap of productivity between people who have money and don't have money. So not just with crack, um, these cloud labs, but with any access to robots, you know, suddenly you've got something that's preparing for you all through the day. And if you don't have access to that robot, you have to do Mm -hmm. that manually. So this is really, that can widen the gap quite a lot. I think that's a bit concerning. I think I also have some some anxiety about how well these robots work based on we had a pipetting robot, which was very hard to use or only some people could use that. And we had a robot that shook, like homogenized, like ground material while it was frozen. And that robot was out of commission. <laughs> Most of my PhD <laughs> was always a bit broken. So I think I'm a little bit like terrified about, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is, you're paying a lot of money. I'm assuming I have a lot of money for upkeep. I, I think the big thing to me is this concern about this then splitting even further the potential to produce results at speed. You're really giving an advantage and a disadvantage yeah. that has ha- more so than there is. I mean, this is the problem with all money and technology advancement. Yeah, I mean, I've worked, worked in a service provider where we were scanning microarrays, like running the microarrays. This is like an outdated type of thing. I, I'm, for some cases, you still do that, but it was before we could easily sequence all of the RNA in an organism, which is fairly easy to do nowadays. Back then, you would do that on these little chips and only analyze a subset of RNAs. It was was like fairly complicated, but also kind of cool. And I worked there as a student job. And yeah, we had lots and lots of expensive machines. I would constantly run machines that were each like $500,000 worth of equipment. And mm-hmm. they had a couple of them standing there because universities can't all have this. Um, but as a service yeah. provider, it's running them literally every day of the week and over weekends constantly then it's worthwhile to have all of these very expensive machines. So this sort of thing existed before with robots. It sort of goes into a new area, but I think more money gets you more results quicker. So that's unfortunately always been the case. Cat fact. Uh, I have a very short cat fact, um, and it's only chosen because it's called Golden Cats, a never-ending story, and I don't really know what a golden cat is, and I am very happy to say that the authors have provided some photos of golden cats within their article, which is very useful, and I would just like to reach out to any plant scientists listening. You need to be providing photos of your plants as well. I know they're not as cute as a golden cat, but it drives me mad when I see like a new plant being described and there's not a photograph of how it looks because I do not have a visual imagination and I cannot understand it. I think this is less common now. I think like in the 2000s, there was a lot of papers about new mutants Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have the the basic wild type versus mutant photo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they would just have anyway, some sort of metabolite measurement that were in- was interesting to their story, but you were go- going through the figures and it's just like, graph, graph, <laughs> where, graph. Where? where is the photo? <laughs> yeah. I want to see okay. a picture of the baby. 
So this has uh, beautiful pictures of four cats on it. As it turns out, a golden cat is just a type of British cat that mm. happens to have gold. But apparently it was only discovered or I guess bred. It was reported by breeding in the 2010s, so less than a decade ago. Um, so I guess they've they've bred a novel type of cat, which I don't know. We probably shouldn't be breeding cats anymore, you guys. They, they're probably perfect already. Let's just back off on <laughs> stay <up. laughs> on making pedigree animals anyway they've they've found this new thing they reported it and now they did um GWA, so genome-wide association study which is basically you look at the you have some of the individuals which have the phenotype the the look that you're interested in and then you sort of compare them to ones that don't and you look to see what the genetic differences are that all of those ones with the desirable mm -hmm. phenotype or the phenotype of interest share so they had i think 13 of these golden cats and they were looking to see what was happening and they basically just identified the gene which or there's like a defect there's a sort of nonsense Mm -hmm. nonsense variant in a certain gene which is not very exciting but has has given beautiful uh, it means beautiful, beautiful cats with CRISPR we can have more golden cats yeah I, I mean on, on that positive sure. note I think it's time to end tonight's show um, if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on social media on Twitter you can talk to me that's at Plants Pipettes on Instagram and sometimes on Facebook at Plants and Pipettes you can find me we also have a website. It's www.plantsandpets.com where we have written stuff in the past. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Goodbye.